Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls. I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We can hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play Store. Know where you stand with OnX. Oh, I got a I got a COVID hot tip for you. Um, it's like a hot tip off about COVID. I had, you know, when you get a hair when you get a your haircut and uh, and then your t shirt gets all full of the hair. And it just drives you insane. I feel like you have a bad barber. Because when I go, man, they keep it nice and tidy and keep it all off me. They have this thing they put around you. Make yeah, it, that little it, tissue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, but you know about, I'm not saying that it happens to me every time, but you've had that experience. My wife cuts my kids' hair and she doesn't put anything on them. And then they don't even, they'll never wear those shirts again. They complain about them every time. You oh, can't yeah. get it out. Because she buzz home, cuts them. At home haircut, when I do buzz cut, you're exactly right. Well, I wore my mask uh, through my haircut. My mask? Okay. Holy shit, is that uncomfortable? Oh, yeah. Every time I put it on, I'm like, <laughs> spitting all that hair out that got stuck in that thing. Joined today by YP from Barstool Sports. How you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? Um, do you, uh, I know your name's Ben. What, what's your preferred thing? I don't know. It, it's, I'm sure, like, I'd like to get your guys' take. That's got to be a weird <laughs> thing to meet a guy named Young Page Views. What the hell's going on? It was an accident. I, I actually was never meant to be. I don't know. I'm, I made a music video, believe it or not, when I was trying to get a job at Barstool, and Dave calls himself Davey Page Views because he came up as a blogger, and that's like the metric. He like, yeah, they like page views. Yeah, so that that's like a cool thing. Like, I don't know. To get a lot of page views. Yeah, he was like the king of the page views. So when I made, I was trying to get his attention, and I was like, weirdly, to like do fishing content, I was like, I made a music video. Don't ask me how or why, but. Get the attention of Dave Portnoy. Yeah. One of the funniest dudes. Ever. Yeah. I don't know. I think ever. He does a good rant. Oh, my God. When he's annoyed about something. It's crazy, as long as it's not I you. I always feel like annoying him about something so that I could watch him express annoyance. 
I would love. I, I told us when we talked the first time, when, and I was, you know, we yeah, were we were gonna of, have an argument about hunting. Yes, I would love to see you guys to talk about it because I've never seen him lose an argument. He's. Do you slippery. think he'd come on this show and argue with me about hunting? Here's the thing. He's smart enough to know when. Um, I think he. I think, <laughs> no, no, he's smart enough to know when. Like, I think he doesn't want to hunt, but he knows the ethics where he's not going to get into an argument about like it's totally bad. Because he eats meat and, like, he's smart enough to know that that's hypocritical. He eats meat, yeah. Oh, yeah. So, like, I think he just doesn't want to hunt. Do you know what I mean? But I don't think Good. he, like, that's hates the best hunting. Kind of, the best kind of person on the planet. <laughs> yeah. The best, I, like, I wish the whole planet didn't hunt but really supported it. So then you should like me because that's, I, that's big, me right now. Oh. I have, I'm not a big <laughs> hunter guy, but I eat a lot of meat. But now, actually, you won't like me because now I'm coming into the... I'm trying to start. You know what I mean? Yeah, so I'll stop liking you soon. I know, soon. But I'm still bad enough shot that you'll still like me for a little bit. You want to hear a crazy hunting story? I would love to. Spencer will tell you one. Tell him about the owl, Spencer. Um, Yanni, before I tell the story, like, what is the Latvian mantra when it comes to karma? Like, karma is a big part of Latvian stuff, right? Steve nailed it. Just ask him. Hold on, karma's a big part of Latvian stuff? I, I, I feel like I've heard you talk about karma a lot. Yeah. You got to keep in mind, that, Spencer, that our whole lens into Latvian culture is just Giannis. Is Giannis. <laughs> so Giannis has attributes that aren't necessarily Latvian that we ascribe sure. as Latvian. May, may, so maybe this isn't a Latvian thing, it's a Giannis thing. Yeah, totally, just okay. from my upbringing. All right, all right. Well, I yeah. thought, I thought uh, a lot about you when this was happening. Okay. I was in eastern Montana this last weekend. Um I was on my second day of the haunt. There was moving spots from my morning spot to my afternoon spot. On my drive, I came across an owl caught in a barbed wire fence. What kind of owl? Great horned owl. Caught in a fence. Caught in a barbed wire fence. So I pulled over to take pictures, and uh, I snap a photo. God, those and big then, owls. Yeah, it was big. My brother hit one one time, busted out the front grill and the headlight on his car. Whew. Owl. After being up close, I, I can understand why. Pulled over to take some pictures because it's like, oh, this is like kind of a cool poetic scene or something. I don't, I don't know why. Like two, hmm. two foot tall animal. No, standing way there. bigger than that. How tall are they standing? Probably three. I wish Doug Dern was here. He'd know two, already. He'd looked it up on his phone. <laughs> two feet's not a bad guess. Caught in the fence. So I, I take a few pictures. And you thought there was poetry in watching this owl suffer. <laughs> At the time, I didn't know that it was still alive. Oh. The whole scene from my pickup on the side of the road to the barbed wire fence looked like this was death. Yeah, you're like, there's got to be a metaphor in here somewhere. There were feathers in the ditch. It had, um, like, evacuated its bowels in the snow. I couldn't see its head. I thought maybe it was decapitated. Oh, huh. Um, Jeez. So I I get get sort of close. I take a few pictures, and then it moves. I'm like, oh, this thing is still alive. How tall is a great 25 inches. Okay. Oh, good job, Spence. Good. Yanni said too fun. Thank you. Lavians always know that. (laughs) Um, I want to know more details about how it was caught. Bottom strand between two? It looked like, no, it was in the top strand. It looked as though it had been crucified. Like both wings were on the top barbed wire fence. Oh, that is kind of poetic. Yeah. And then the rest of his body was just hanging down. I have photos. I I can show you um, after this. Are you going to put them on Instagram? I think so. All right, so everybody can go to Instagram. Do you want me to do it, or are you going to do it? Uh, we'll figure it out later. Everybody go to uh, just tell them your handle. At Spencer Newharth, N-E-U-H-A-R-T-H. At Spencer Newharth, and you will find photos of Spencer's uh, 
poetry. All of his poetry is written in feathers. <laughs> What's your guess? Was it uh, was it swooping down to get something? So, just... so I have a pretty good answer on this part. Um, I'll, I'll get to it in a second. So I find this owl, realize it's still alive, get to work on getting it out of the fence. Um, hmm. The one wing comes out pretty easy. The next wing, though, was like in there, in there. Is he just biting at you? Bad? No, nope. It was, it was very docile. Hmm. Um, and when you're up that close, the talons are like ridiculous on it. But the good news was I had my first light mitts with me, which were like the biggest, heaviest wool winter gloves that they have. And I was able to handle it pretty confidently with those. So I kind of opened up its talons, which had a wing in one of its talons, and I pulled that out. It was like uh, I'm sorry, was, I don't understand that. Its, it's talons, yeah, its talons were just kind of grasping at stuff. Oh, at whatever it, it could get. Its yeah, and it had on. sort of grasped its own wing. Huh. Um, so, Man. the the next wing though would not come out. I tried as hard as I could, could not get it out. But I had a pliers in my pickup, wrapped up in the barb, wrapped up in the barb badly. Um, so I went to my pickup, got a pliers, and uh, cut the fence on both sides of the wing, and then the owls and free, but it had like three inches of fence hanging out of its wing. I also, I haul my camping gear in four totes. I keep it in, in four totes that are, I don't know how big, maybe like 30 gallons or something. And I had one of the totes that were empty. So I put the owl in the tote in hmm. the back of my pickup. Did not have service where I was at. Drove out about 20 miles to where I could get service. Called the game warden. Um, after like calling five of them, one finally answered. And he said, well, I would just leave it. Whatever happens, happens, he said. And that wasn't advice. Well, no, you know what? Why it's not? Maybe, not any disrespect to him, mm-hmm. because like a f- I wouldn't regard a fence. Like if you had found it tangled up in a, oh, like a coyote had a, got it or something. Yeah, then I could see that you would have that perspective. But yeah. here it is, it's in a man-made thing, and so now humanity is involved. Yes, there was like some responsibility involved. Sure. It wasn't my fence. I can see that. Um. The game warden said, just whatever happens, happens. Let it be. But I wasn't real satisfied. And at this point, I had a live owl in the back of my pickup. So it was also like beyond the whatever happens, happens. You're probably getting attached a little bit, right? Yeah, what's his name? (laughs) Uh, Well, I I already had some names picked out for it, actually. (laughs) We'll get to that. I was going to call it, uh, I had two names picked out. Either Peck, Mm. because of where it was at. You can figure that part out on your own. (laughs) Fort Peck Reservoir. Sneaky. Yeah. Or meat eater, because I'm sure it eats a lot of meat. Yeah. I, I, I'd like those two. So I got a phone to the game warden, wasn't real satisfied. I called the Billing Zoo. The Billing Zoo said, we do not do any owl rehabilitation, but you should call the Montana Raptor Conservation Society, whatever they're called. Is that down the Bitterroot? They are in Bozeman. Oh, okay. Right out of Bozeman. There's one down the Bitterroot. So too. I called them on a Saturday afternoon at like noon. They answered. And they, they said, well... Um, here are the options. You can drive it to us in Bozeman, or we have some contacts spread out throughout the state where we'll do like a little relay race where you will deliver it to this person, they will deliver it to us. We could do that. So the, the woman on the phone, uh, she also told me this on the front end. She says birds and fences have very low survival rate hmm. uh, and an even lower rehabilitation rate. That like this thing is going to function well enough to be like they just get too banged up. Yeah, it's just like a bad situation. Not many of them come out of there in a good deal. So they found somebody who was a volunteer ninety miles away that I could then drive the owl to, and Mm -hmm. that person would deliver it the rest of the way to the Raptor Center. Um, So I agreed to do that, 
and uh, basically took myself out of hunting for the rest of the day because it was just going so far out of the way where I was going the opposite direction of where I wanted to go. And I wouldn't be able to hunt that evening because there's just going to be too much time on the road. Hmm. So I take this owl to the woman who's then going to take it to Bozeman. And on my way home from there. Pump, oh, okay. So you say like, here's an owl in a box. What's her take on it? Yeah, so my, my Did wife. Did she take a look? Uh, no, this this person was just a regular citizen. And my you wife handed them a box with an owl in a it. A tote. A tote that had holes cut in it with my Benchmade EDC uh, so it could breathe. I handed them the tote, and then they took it the rest of the way. And they didn't even take a peek. So the, the person on the phone from the Raptor looked. Center said that they cannot handle the owl at all. Oh, okay. They're not allowed to. Gotcha. But that lady told me that this was the third bird in the week that she had taken to them. Hmm. And she had hit the trifecta now in a week because she had done an eagle, a hawk, and then this was her owl. Man. A lot of birds get messed up out there, apparently. I've heard that uh, barbed wire fences are one of the biggest detriments to sage-grouse yeah. populations. And, and, and you'll yeah, see, in, in that area, you'll see a lot of fences that have flagging on them just to make it more visible so the sage grouse don't fly into them. And they put those little metallic reflectors on yeah, there to exactly. blow in the breeze. Because yeah. it's like a, certain people, when you string, I don't know, whatever height, inches, I've heard that, that that's kind of like a, a cruising height for them? Or? Yep, exactly. Huh. So no one, So to this point, you haven't gotten any any um, updates or any reason to think that the owl's going to make it, not make it? You're saying like right now or the day that I was delivering no, the No, right now. I'll get to that at the end. I have an update on the owl. Oh, jeez. Okay. Yeah. Uh, one quick really constructs a narrative. Mm-hmm. Was he able to stand up in the tote? So. Or was he laying down like in a little coffin? Yeah, he was, he was mostly laying down. When I would <laughs> mess with him, he was like conscious. He would look <laughs> at with me. Him. So uh, you were you're harassing him. <laughs> that? Him. You were harassing him and yeah, stuff? Well, uh, harassing in a way of like trimming the barbed wire yeah. around. So it didn't have 10 inches of barbed wire instead of. Kyle Spencer. Three inches. You're still getting up to the Latvian karma thing, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah right. Did you hunt down a, a mouse or a vole or anything to try to feed it? <laughs> no. Nope. Not enough time. Oh, can I tell you something real quick, though? My kid, we were out hunting for the youth season. He found a baby mouse and carried around in his bino pouch. <laughs> and it was like, I'm not kidding you. We got a deer later, and that mouse um, was licking his hand and stuff. Like he, this mouse was like a full-on pet mouse. And he, had, your your son, told you about this? No, I was with him. He's like, look, and I look in his bino pouch. I was like, where's you know? Anyways, he's carrying this mouse around in there all day long. Then him and his sister, they name it everything. Then they have a change of heart and let it go. And then the next day, just were like catatonic about having let that mouse go. And wanted to go find another baby mouse. And I was like, I've been wandering around this planet for 46 years. That's the first baby mouse I've ever seen anyone find. So I don't think you're going to go out right now and get one. I, like that I can point him in the right direction, though. You know, our, down at our chicken coop, I'm sure there's a couple running around. They forgot about it, but I was going to rig them up a bucket trap and just put nesting material in there. So instead of them drowning in, in antifreeze, <laughs> they'd have like a little collection of mice they could... Come on, come on, Steve's great <laughs> mouse zoo. <laughs> Anyways, all right, go on. I, 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 this is a great story. I love it. All right, so I've now 
relayed the owl to the other person. That person is in route to Bozeman. I'm in route back to camp, but I'm not going to make it back to camp in time that evening to hunt. Just not, not enough daylight left. On my way there, though, about 30 miles from where I just dropped off this owl, I see some deer filtering into a field a um, couple hundred yards off the highway. It's private land, but I had Onyx, and I had the maps downloaded, despite there not being any service. Found out where the landowner lived because I thought, well, this is my one chance. Like, this is my only opportunity to hunt for this evening. Went and knocked on the rancher's door, and they told me that I could go hunt. Really? Now, mind you, to this point, I had decided this summer that I was like, I'm going to try to find a whitetail property to hunt this year in eastern Montana. And I went 0 for 15 on getting permission. <laughs> no shit. <laughs> yeah. No kidding. 0 for 15. <laughs> but it just ain't happening. Just not happening. Did you, did you butter him up with the owl story? No. Well, I'd be like. Did not come up. Uh, I, I was prepared, I was though. trying to rescue a owl. And he'd probably be like, bring me the owl because I'm going to strangle it if he's like an old rancher. Anyways. I was trying to rescue an owl, and I couldn't yeah. help but notice. I was prepared to explain how I wound up in their, you know, driveway to talk to them, but it didn't get to that point. He just agreed on the front. He's like, "Oh, that's no problem." Yep. So I go back to where I saw the deer. I walk into the pasture, and an hour later, I had killed a buck, a buck that I was really stoked on, like that I would shoot any state, anywhere, private or public, uh, a huh. great four by four. So I would have never been in that area had it not been for rescuing the owl, though, because I was 80 miles in the wrong direction from where I wanted to be hunting that evening. Did you then go sleep in your camp that night? Nope. I went and broke down camp and drove home. Okay. But hmm. the whole time this happened, I was thinking of Yanni and Karma. And I was telling that to my wife. But yeah. Then, then she, you she need said, to tell that story to Yanni's dad if you really want mm, to get the dope. Okay. Yeah. He'll just be like, of course, that's how the universe works. <laughs> I don't believe, but I'm closer now. Closer. I got an update on the owl on Monday. It's dead. Oh. oh. <laughs> so that, that was a bummer. They said it could not be re- rehabilitated. Both wings were in too bad of shape. Um, there'd be too much stitching to be done. They just said it wouldn't, wouldn't So did they, they euthanize it or so did they, it? They put it down. Yeah. Yep. Yep. You know that joke about the guy that goes out of town and his uh, cat gets on the roof? That reminds me of that joke. I wanted a happy ending real bad. I was I was stoked. I was like, I'm going to volunteer for them. I'm going to go feed this thing. I'm going to go and take pictures of this owl named Meat Eater. I'm going to be there when they release it. Uh, you had like a little mind movie. Oh, I was That's all in. called a mind movie when that happens. I was all in on it. Uh, <laughs> we, have, we have three, four like real writers in this room. You consider yourself a writer too, Ben? I would not say no, so. No, okay. <laughs> so four. <laughs> like 140 is there a name? <laughs> is there a name for a story that has like simultaneously like that, a, a good and bad ending? Hmm. Well, you could do a choose your own. You could do a choose your own ending book, <laughs> yeah. and you'd be like, if the owl dies, <laughs> don't get the deer. <laughs> well, what I, what I got, I go to page seven. It's kind of like the ask, ending though. of a Tarantino movie, really. Like, yeah. I was telling my died. wife, I was telling my wife about this like karma that I'd built up and stuff, right? And then I kill this deer, and she's like, well, I, if karma works, like I don't know that they would reward you with, kill, yeah, with that's a good killing point. another animal. Like that's you, a great. I'm glad your wife brought that up. That's a really good point. You're saying that like. I saved an animal, yep. and so I was rewarded by the universe yes. with being able to kill one. Yep. 
But then the one I saved died too. And that's just how the universe functions. So now two, two dead animals instead. <laughs> that owl got a raw deal, man. He like it's in well, the story. It didn't, didn't die in, it didn't die in vain, I guess. It helped me get a buck. So. If that owl had lived, he'd sue you for like stealing his <laughs> shit, man. His that's story. right. And now I know how to handle the, the situation next time. Come upon someone like this. Just call the Montana Raptor Center. They'll get you hooked up. They are uh, like a very energetic. Are you going to become a donor now? I'm not going to be a donor, no. But I looked on their website for volunteer opportunities. The only volunteer opportunity they have right now is if you live in Billings, Montana, you can be part of this relay race from taking owls from there to Bozeman. Hmm. That's you the, know, those places often for. take uh, like trim meat from yes. hunters and stuff. Yep. If you got oh, stuff Yeah, remember around. Yvonne Chouinard had that story. He used to bring roadkill deer. He used to bring roadkill deer to a raptor center, but he said they'd usually show up minus the back straps, <laughs> but no one ever brought it up. Um, uh, would you volunteer there at the expense of being able to rock hound? Why couldn't I do both? I'm just saying, like, so let's say a Saturday comes up. Oh. You like rock hounding in one hand, fixing up uh, raptors in the other hand. Sure. I felt, like, pretty rewarded throughout the situation, up until I found out that it died. So I, I, I enjoyed... Um, that I think I would do that again. Yeah. Hmm. I got to ask though, I, you, I've eaten some pretty weird shit with you. Did it ever cross your mind once they said it was dead? Did you, did you ask them if you could breast it out? No, because I imagine their, uh, their euthanizing situation is just like a yeah, cocktail. I, 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 fi- I figured. That'd, <laughs> that'd be some thin ass breasts on that bird, man. Probably. Owl's not going to have, my dad always told a story. My dad was from the era when people just, you just shot things for no reason. Mm-hmm. He always told a story about sitting in his tree stand one day and seeing an owl, like, at eye level with him, way off, and shooting. And he said his arrow goes, he's talking about how, like, fluffy they are. And he says his arrow goes right through the owl, but the owl doesn't even flinch. And he realized it just passed through the feathers of the owl. Now I would say, like, why in the world are we shooting at the owl? But at the time, you're just like, huh. Yeah. The old we- days. He used, to belong to this, he used to belong to Chicago Bowman. And they had a little patch with every, like, everything that was on Noah's Ark, they had a patch for. <laughs> and all you had to do is go in and be like, I shot a uh, toad with my bow, and you get the toad patch. I'm not kidding. And he had, like, a sash. I'm not, he had, like, a sash with dozens of patches of just everything on the planet. Because this is back when people were super excited about bows. Like the Fred Bear era. Who's that dude who went to Africa to prove you could kill an elephant with a bow and shot it like 90 times? Ooh. Howard or something like that. It was like everybody was geeked up Howard on bows. It's like people hadn't hunted with bows and they were getting back into hunting with bows. And so everybody was just trying to show like how great bows were so you could get bow seasons and shit like that. Mm-hmm. He like worked really hard to get states to get bow seasons. And then later in his life fought against states having crossbow seasons. Uh, okay. One more little uh, report. Hold on. The the interaction I was dreading most throughout this whole thing was then talking to the rancher about me cutting his fence, which was not ideal for him, certainly. Uh, but I found his phone number, called him, told him the situation, and he was very understanding. It was really pleasant. I offered to go back and fix it for him. And he's like, no, just tell me where it's at. I'll deal with it. Hmm. Um, so did very he say, positive on that front as So well. was he like, yeah, I would have done the same thing? Or was he kind of like, you did what? <laughs> It was it was pretty brief, uh, so that didn't come up. When you cut the wire, did it go twang and like undo six posts? No. Oh, okay. No. no. Hmm. It would have been a, an easy fix for somebody. You so knew you called him up. Called him up. Well, I 
I, I felt bad. Uh, no, I, I, you did the right thing, man. Sure. I was actually wondering about that the whole time, but I was trying to only interrupt you like 30 times. <laughs> did you, when you called to uh, tell him about his fence, did you try to sneak in a, <laughs> uh, a permission to ask? <laughs> As I was cutting, while I was cutting your fence, I couldn't help but notice what a beautiful property you have. Yeah. Deer was dead by that point, so I didn't I didn't need any more permissions. Oh, but well, I got you for twenty twenty one. That's right. I didn't yeah. wa- I didn't want to push karma too much there. Uh, okay, Yanni. Um, we got to cut in Taylor McCall's intro. Yanni's book report. Okay, yeah, and uh, Sam's going to help Yanni. Sam Lundgren is going to help Yanni with his book report. Brody yeah. Henderson's here, too, but he hasn't really said shit. I'm just waiting for my moment. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, go ahead. Um, I'm here today to talk about <laughs> how... Um, I don't have a proper intro. Yeah, for not this, a strong for, for start. set up. <laughs> There Why, is, Pete? <clears throat> were you, did you, were you, the, were you? You were probably flying high off the owl story, right? I was. I mean, until it got killed. I don't know. And then, and then, like when Yanni kicked in there, did you feel like a mm-hmm. just a real like yeah. just the energy drained out of the room, didn't it? <laughs> the owl just died again when he started that thing. <laughs> <laughs> I remembered that it got euthanized. Right. We're, we're gonna go from predatory <laughs> birds to prey birds oh, like here, talk, like talking Ooh. about ducks. Slick segue. The, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service announced, uh, I think, over the summertime, that for their contest that uh, takes in artwork entries that are then used for the federal duck stamp, has a new rule. Okay. Now, to tell you all about the federal duck stamp and exactly what it is and how that works, here's Sam Lundgren. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. That's like, <laughs> and I, I promise I will pick it up as, as oh, right okay. after. Because I was like, that was a done. very eloquent, just like getting in there and out of there, man. <laughs> well, thank That's you. I got the news over to you, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, thanks, Yanni. Glad to have an opportunity to, to talk about one re- of my favorite <laughs> my programs. <laughs> well, I, I think uh, many of our listeners are probably abundantly familiar with the federal duck stamp program. Every American who wants to hunt waterfowl has to buy one every year. It's $25. Uh, the program was established in 1934. Hmm. And you can read a piece I wrote about uh, Ding Darling, Jay Norwood Darling, who is a a political cartoonist. Like a satirist. A satirist. Yeah. How do you say that word? Satirist? Sat- satire? Satirist. 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 It doesn't sound right, though, does it? Yeah, either way. Either way. He satired things. Yeah, he did. He did. Um, but yeah, he was, a, he was a cartoonist for mo- most of his career, but he, um, he, he became so prominent that um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt hired him to start the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Sur- uh, Service. It was called something different back then. Um, but Congress passed the federal duck stamp act in 1934 and he was responsible for implementing that. And he drew the first one. It used to be a dollar. Um, but it was, it was meant to generate funding for, um, wetlands conservation. It started out as a dollar? One dollar. Yeah. Do you know how how much money totaled now? Yeah. It's over a billion dollars now. Over a billion dollars. Yeah. You see different numbers in different places. I've seen 800 million in some places, but, um, the U S fish and wildlife service says 1 billion and, and that they've conserved over six, uh, 6 million acres of, um, of wetlands. 
since oh, 1934. Man. A lot of and that's, muskrats. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> man. It's, so it's it's a, it's enormously popular and successful program, um, and it's become really popular for collection. And, and I actually just spoke to the uh, well via email to the chief of the federal duck stamp office this morning. Um, and is that they, his dedicated job year her, round, her, or he just kind of kicks in for a week or two every year? Her dedicated job, but I believe it's year round. Um, hmm. And I've worked worked with her before to get uh, permissions for us to use uh, uh, images of duck stamps oh, in some you. of our media. But she said that they sell uh, 1.5 million stamps every year. At, and what are they again now? They're twenty five dollars now. They had been like fifteen for an eternity. They were fifteen until twenty fourteen, and everybody had a shit fit. Yeah, because it went up from fifteen to twenty five, but then people had to point out we haven't raised it for a long time, decades. Yeah, decades. But we're also scheduled for another ten dollar increase sometime in the near future, I believe. And anyone that wants to hunt ducks has to buy that. And then for a weird reason, I guess maybe not weird because no, they don't want you trading it between your friends. You got to write your name on it. Yeah, you well, gotta yeah, like put it on your license, then write your name across it, so it's like not transferable. Yeah, that, I never yeah. really put that together. But yeah, so you, so you can't be like, oh, just take my duck stamp. Yeah, and she she said that there's about one one million waterfowl hunters approximately every year who who buy a, a waterfowl um, waterfowl licenses and and hunt waterfowl. But um, she also knows that a large proportion of hunters buy two every year, one f- to put on their license and one for a collectible, which my my dad's done for my entire life. He's, he's always bought a couple because he, he likes the program. Yeah, he likes the program. Um, they have a series of like prints from back in I think the eighties with uh you know like the actual print of the painting plus the duck stamp. Oh yeah, yeah. It. My friend Mark has a lot of those. Yeah, he's got a lot of those. You're They're right. Beautiful. It's like a he's big painting, mm-hmm. and then in the corner is the, is stamp. the actual stamp. Yeah. yeah, yeah. My father-in-law has a wall. Literally uh, of that. He yeah, was like a chapter chairman or president for a lot of years of a DU um, uh, chapter. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's like, I don't know, 10 or 15 in each frame. And there's just a whole wall of them. You know, he's been, hmm. did it for 40 years or so. Have I you ever asked, uh, did you, when you're on the phone with, what's the woman's name who runs that program? Suzanne Fellows. Have you ever asked her why they won't do like a cubist duck? Or an impressionistic I, duck. I've wanted to, but I have or not. Ab- like a modern duck. Daffy duck. We, they, they, this conversation was just duck. on, on they, email. I'm, I'm going to ask you that. I would like to know because they, like it's yeah. a certain like the Picasso. style. It's yeah. a certain style. It's like very photographic. And who knows? Maybe there's never even been a submission. That's well, not well, the, you know, in, of in the, the style that yeah, we're like talking about. The context of, the previous, uh, the, of that article I wrote was uh, about our friend Ed Anderson, mm-hmm. who, who's done some paintings and some collaborations with us before. And his his style is very, like, kind of comic book. Like, we did that shirt with him, yeah. that tarpon. That yeah, looks would like, they ever put one of his ducks on a stamp? So he's considered... He's considered uh, trying to submit something under his under his style and I, I don't know but we did talk about that because he was doing an art the reason I did that article is he was doing an artist in residency at the Ding Darling National Wildlife yep. Refuge so I, I was kind that. of comparing him to to Ding Darling because Ding was a you know a cartoonist first and kind of a fine artist second um, so I, I think that would be really cool um, and shake it up a little bit but I think it would probably ruffle some feathers if you Dude, will. what's Susan that's your name yep if I was Susan I would go down and I would have a, the crazy asses looking abstract duck. 
Just to see what happens. Some Picasso shit. Yeah, who knows? Be, Maybe it awesome. comes out so cool that you sell an extra half a million next year. All right, so let's get in. Uh, you ready to All get right. into the... Your, so now you throw back to Yanni. Go back to you, Yanni. Well, yeah. Well, <laughs> oh. that, here, let me set him up real quick. Because because they sell $1.5 million a year. They think about $1 million goes to hunters, but they think a lot of hunters buy a lot more. Uh, or, well, more, more than one. Um, but, you know, other people... By other people do buy duck stamps, but it's certainly a smaller proportion. And but at least two thirds of the sons of bitches are sold to hunters. At least two thirds, but you can yeah. get free access to national wildlife refuges with, if if you have a duck stamp. So there oh, there is that. some incentive for bird watchers to do it. But that small percentage of people who buy duck stamps who are not hunters are now upset about a change of the rules. Back to you, Yanni. Back to you, Yanni. Thanks, Sam. That was great information. Good. This is titillating because this is a lot of shit I didn't know. I didn't know about yeah. the refuge access. Yeah, and he and I wouldn't have told you because I don't know what, what Sam just <laughs> what told you. All right, so up until now, I think that they basically just but said, you're back in familiar waters. We, now. we want just like submit us pictures of ducks, right? We're and f- for the duck stamp. Well, in May this year. The, the agency announced a new rule that artwork submitted to the contest must include hunting imagery. And so I don't think it's like all the whole 30% of those people that are non-hunters that are now mad, but one, probably 10 of them, and uh, their group is called <laughs> at least 10 Friends of Animals. A Darien based. I don't even. I don't know where this town. Darien, Darien Connecticut. Darien, Connecticut. Yeah, it's is. like, dude, if there's a place where a place called Friends of Animals is gonna be based. <laughs> And they're well funded. <laughs> That's the place. That's the place. I've never been. That's a, I want to say it in the If you had ten people to. with enough money to get all that going, as Darien, Connecticut. There you go. <laughs> so yeah, they're they're saying that it's um, it, it's just it, it's just going to alienate this third, and so we're going to actually lose a bunch of duck stamp sales, and it's <laughs> it's going like against you know what what this whole thing is for, and and so basically we're going to lose money for critical habitat, lose money for the ducks themselves. Because and, those people aren't buying one. Yeah, and her, the the uh, the leader, the president, <laughs> great name, Priscilla too. Farrell, is her last name. <laughs> <laughs> she says it's almost comical the desperate lengths the dwindling hunting industry is willing to go to make its clients feel relevant. Huh? I see both sides. Why did they make a rule that it has <laughs> like like I'm happy they did, you know? Like, for instance, if I'm out in the parking lot or whatever, and a guy comes up and goes, hey, here's a thousand bucks, right? I'd be like, I'm happy you gave me the thousand bucks, but I just don't get why he gave me the thousand bucks. Yeah. Yeah. I don't see, I don't see any hunters saying, we want, we want to be featured in this stand. They're like, why? Just to stick it to, like, why? Just to be rabble rousers? Well, no, I think there's, because they want to say, hey, lest we forget that two thirds of this billion dollars over the last six, 70 years, no. 90 years, lest we forget that it's two-thirds of it has come from hunters. Let's make sure. And so I believe that this year's winner, there is a floating duck call. Floating? In the foreground. Yeah. Looks like, like it's supposed to be lost call? or something. Yeah, I mean, how do you drop a you lost keep it duck on a, call is in the center of the picture? <laughs> keep it on a damn landing, No, man. I don't think it's... It. <laughs> <laughs> Sam, Sam, the, Sam's going to protest and not buy one because it, no, he doesn't like that. It's like, the guy don't need to have a lanyard. Well, it, it's it's wedged, it, it, it is a little bit wedged in there. I mean, I'm I'm all about this. I, I appreciate what they're trying to do, but it's just I I feel like artistically, it's 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 a little bit forced. You'd have preferred just like a flat out dead duck. 
I don't know, maybe a blind in the background, a guy or a blasting guy, or, away, or, or somebody out, somebody out in a kayak <laughs> with a string of uh, sea duck decoys or something like that. They're not, well, yeah, up yeah. until now, yeah. it's always been those beautiful, like wings cupped, soaring, coming in right at sunset, probably after legal shooting light, right? So you can't shoot them anyways. <laughs> but you could just change that from that just that beautiful wing stretched outlook to that one where like it's just when he gets hit and he kind of sometimes his wings in, his, flying. his head falls to the side and he sort of. Has that like gravity is taking over moment? They probably considered that one strong. <laughs> Wait, so, so a guy lost his call and it's kind of floating in the water. It, it, there yeah. were, were a lot of details about this. The the one that won. Oh, I got a picture of it oh, right you, here. Oh, that is the winner. That okay. is the winner. Hold on a minute. Is that it's supposed to be a decoy or a real duck? It's supposed to be a real duck. It's well, he did scalp, have a lanyard. Right? Sam, the lanyard got hung up on those cattails. Oh dang it! I was thinking I didn't mean to cast aspersions or anything. It seems like I, I do. I, I do like it. I'm just. I'm just saying. Like I'm a traditionalist. Dude, my duck kid could have incorporated hunting into a picture better. Yeah, that seems. <laughs> okay, like well, it would have been guns a blazing. Yeah, but yeah, it's like his lanyard's kind of tangled up in some cattails. Maybe some it was from s- Armistice Day. Hmm. Oh, yeah. Could be. It's like the day the duck hunters died. It is. Yeah, Spencer just wrote an awesome article about that. Huh. What do you think about all that, YP? Is that that is what they're mad about? They saw that and then got mad. Yep. Uh, yeah. No, they no, they're they're the federal the government. No, no, they, they're getting <laughs> mad about the rule that all submissions now have to include hunting in the imagery. I will. I just would have loved just to for be that there. year or every year. No, I, I, as far as I understand it, just from the little research that I did, it's going forward. Hmm. I, I've got to imagine that that'll change back though. Why? Because these folks from Darien. No, because the leadership of the Department of the Interior is about to change. Oh, they're going to get a lot less hunting friendly, potentially. Potentially. TBD. That means to be determined. Hey, guys, turkey season is in full swing right now. And if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some meat eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms I like them because it gives you hand-free calling meaning when you're working a bird up close you can have your gun on your knee finger on the trigger ready to roll and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls because I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I'll have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. I was going to talk about the drug ketamine. You ever go into a K-hole, YP? No, I've not. I was going to talk about the drug. Have you? No. But they use it on wildlife and a guy wrote in a pretty good explanation of like, how ketamine is used in wildlife research and how ketamine is used recreationally and how ketamine is used 
as a medical drug. And he sent this chart about the more you take, how you move from an analgesia. Am I saying that right? Analgesia. Uh, analgesia. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, whoa. Yeah, how it goes from being an analgesia. An anal- I, I've never, ever liked that word. <laughs> no, it's ever. not a good word. I've never liked that word. <laughs> it goes from a pain reliever. Analgesia. It goes from that. Yeah, but those things, dude, you can't trust those things. You can't trust them. No. It's like an automated robot. It's like, ask a, oh, I got a great Yanni story for you. So, you know, everybody thinks Giannis, his name is Janice. This is hilarious. So, Giannis got this big shipment of shrimp tails from our buddy Greg. Oh, I haven't even heard this one. Yeah. Yeah. So, but Greg's like, does it, somehow Giannis's big shipment of shrimp tails is showing up at the airport, freight. And Giannis is supposed to go down and pick up his frozen shrimp tails, but he's out of town. So, I'm like, shit, I better go get the shrimp tails, but I can't. I can't remember why I couldn't. I had some reason I couldn't get the shrimp tails. So Kylie, I'm like, Kylie, can you go pick up Yanni's shrimp tails? He's out of town. So Kylie goes down there and walks in to get the shrimp tails. Guess the first thing out of the woman's mouth? You must be Janice. (laughs) (laughs) She smiled, nodded, and took the box home. (laughs) What a boss. I love it. Much, oh, so, much smaller spot prawns than we're used to yeah, catching and, and eating, darker huh? colored, like they weren't cleaned properly. Did you notice that when you thaw them? Have you eaten any yet? They have an iodine color to them that I don't see on the big dogs. Hmm. You don't think that's because they're very uh, eggy? I feel like that year that we caught all the egg-laden ones, they were more like this. That yellow. Oh. That yellow. Yeah, but those tails didn't have any eggs on them. Oh, no. Like more than 50% of the ones I had are covered really? in eggs. Yeah. I've only eaten one bag of yours. We ate two bags. <laughs> They're not mine. They sent them to both of us. No, I, I handed a couple out to some coworkers too. Uh, yeah, as you up this ketamine dose, you go into a, dissoci- a dissociated state. But I'm not going to cover that because we're going to get into something else. Uh, okay. This is a YP that I want you to know as you're sitting in here. Um, so far, it's been pretty typical. Mm-hmm. Covered the kind of stuff we normally cover. Oh, yeah. Here, you're going to see a wild deviation in what way we're gonna talk about a thing we do, wouldn't normally talk about we've no. only done this once before no, i'm scared no that's no. not true we've done a book dedicated podcast before mm-hmm. twice you twice. and i yeah because you and i you and i have actually maybe done this might be our fourth because i believe we don't did one each for the the uh guidebooks and we definitely did one for the cookbook Guidebooks. I don't think way that back. we had a. I don't think we. The, the you, show existed back then. You and I. I think I flew to Seattle, and it was in your first house in Seattle, and we were in some crazy little high up office. Like you You're had right. some office on like the third floor of this old house. Yeah. And we were tucked in there. It had like a slanted ceiling, and we were tucked in there. And uh, yeah, we probably barely knew each other, but we went through the first guidebook. No shit. True story. All right, so it's a little more typical than I thought. <laughs> <laughs> a little more typical than I thought. So never mind all that. So uh, uh, a very typical episode for us here where we talk about a new book release that we have out. Uh, I, want, I want to start out with a quick story. The, the last time we did this, we, did, it, it, we had an episode a couple of years ago, which was called Begging and Pleading. This might, we might call this episode Begging and Pleading Redux, part two. Um, one or the other. 
Begging and Pleading was an episode dedicated to our cookbook that we did. That was what you guys, you, you listeners out there, came out in such full-fledged support of us after Begging and Pleading that all of the cookbooks that existed sold before the book was released. Now, here's an interesting story. It has been, I'm just going to come out and tell you this. You can dislike me or whatever, but I'm going to tell you. Like, I want to have, like, like, I would like to have a book that was on the New York Times bestseller list. Real, real bad. Total vanity bullshit, but that's just my dream and hope. You guys bought so many copies of the cookbook after begging and pleading that all the cookbooks that were in existence were sold before publication date you all went and bought them on amazon.com because amazon had made a sizable order now i know as a point like the new york times bestseller list looks at how many books were sold in a per, in a certain week however all of your pre-orders count during your first week so you might have a book be for sale for three months before its release date this the release date on our new book which is called the mediator guide to Wilderness Skills and Survival has a December 1 release date. You could already go order it right now. On December 1, all the pre-orders hit. And then you have the seven days after, and that all counts for your New York Times bestseller list thing. What happened with the cookbook is, all the copies in existence all sold through Amazon. And Amazon is historically been in like a pissing match with the New York Times where the New York Times won't accept Amazon's sales figures independently. They need to see it verified because they don't want someone like a single company being able to bullshit them or have their numbers wrong and report a number. And then that goes on the list and they can't independently verify it through some formula where you look at how it's sold in other markets. Because all of our books sold and they had to wait for a reprint. No books sold in other markets. I know as a point of fact, because my publisher had the number six book on the New York Times in our category, our same publisher had the number six book that week, and they told us that we sold thousands more copies than the number six book on the New York Times bestseller list, but they didn't count us because it all sold through Amazon. That's some bullshit. It's just how it is. I have been mad about it 10 times already. <laughs> so have they resolved it though? Is Amazon like counted now or no? They won't count it. They can't. What they're trying to prevent too is someone buying their own book onto the bestseller oh, yeah. list, which people have actually successfully done. Like certain categories, I don't want to spend too much time on this shit. There are certain categories of books where like a, like a surprisingly low number will land you on the list. There have been people that are, just, you know, well-funded individuals who can go on and do these big bulk orders or have like a bunch of their friends do a maximum. You can, you can game the system. So they, they have this way to try to build in where that kind of thing isn't happening. And so they want to see, um, they want to see that the book is doing well in a variety of marketplaces to the point where this is like kind of some weird dirtiness about the, the list to the point where there are certain independent bookstores say, where on the New York Times list will value their sales 2x. It's some weird ass. It is not like what book sold the most. Right. Like it doesn't albums. account for the way 
book buying has changed no, either. That's what all. I'm saying. But you imagine you got a place like, you know, that like there's like a hostility toward the big man. Yeah. Big totally. man being Amazon. Yep. So all that is meant to say, you, as we sell you on this book over the next little bit here, we're going to spend 30 minutes selling you on this book. As we sell you on this book, I don't really, per- I, don't, I don't care where you buy the damn thing. I want you to have the most frictionless interaction possible. But if a little part of you, a little teensy part of you, says, you know what, I'm going to call up uh, Billy's Books down on Main Street and order my copy through Billy, uh, I won't be upset. Neither will Billy. Oh. Always good to support small businesses. Yeah. You need to call that old Bill. <laughs> if you're on a first name basis. <laughs> Like I said, I want, I I think people should have a frictionless buying experience. There is indisputably a a, a lack of friction and and that's in in an Amazon sale. And by God, if that's, that's how you want to buy the book, buy the book that way. The main thing is you buy the damn book just as a favor to me. Secondarily, if you can make some purchases through other, you know, buy that one, then go buy some more through other places just in order to, um, it's just simply this. It's simply just to make me have the happiest day of my damn life outside of my kids being born um, by having one of our books go on that damn list. Think about a nice hunting-friendly company represented on that list. What uh, category do we fall under? You remember the name? Nope. I should know that. You mean the book category? I don't yeah. know which nonfiction category. I don't know if we'd be on general. On Amazon. How it, to? Yeah, it falls under a couple different categories. Well, yeah, we made every other, like our cookbook made every other bestseller list on the freaking planet. But not the one that anyone pays attention. Right. No, I shouldn't say, I don't want to diss other bestseller lists. This list, one but there's sort of up. like a certain cachet, an undeniable cachet. Yeah, that's the one that everybody cares about. Oh my God! I could just taste it. <laughs> we probably we might make a T-shirt that has a big red stamp on it. That says New York Times bestseller. That's a great idea. Just one. Right now, I'm wearing our newer our newest T-shirt with a big uh, old fashioned double long spring on it. Trapping shirt. Were you inspired uh, to make that shirt after our visit down to uh, Gene, the Antler Man? Mm-hmm. Kind of. Jim. G- Jim. Jim. I think it was Jim. Phillips? Let me tell you. Oh, know. sorry. Go ahead. No, I don't know. I'll just try to help you, Ani, with the name. No, thank you. Uh, okay. A little bit about the book. We're we're gonna try to we're gonna do this, try to do this in a painless fashion for y'all. But it would be after working on on the book for years. Um, and a lot of people in the room. What? Well, kind of a lot of the the the, pri- the the primary uh folks are in the room, excluding YP. He didn't he didn't do shit for the book. I didn't do anything. No. <laughs> Sadly. Like nothing. Didn't even contribute. Like a nothing. But maybe he will with a blurb here later. It's too late. Oh, it's too late Didn't for blurbs? Didn't do shit for the book. Right. Damn. <laughs> so, oh, uh, you'll notice in the dedication. I don't want to point out the typo on the dedication. Someone changed Dirt Myth's name to Dirty Myth, which I'll never... <laughs> you can't change it. It's got to stay that way forever oh. now. That's what it is now. Oh, that just, that's just man. what it is now. It's so He's dirty sad, myth. man. Dirty Myth. It's the only mistake I've found. So the book is called, again, the book is called The Meat Eater Guide to Wilderness Skills and Survival. It is, how many pages long? Four. Counting the index is 435 pages long. Let me tell you about why this book exists. I feel as though the 
You'll notice that like in the name Wilderness Skills it precedes survival, right? So like the Meat Eater Guide to Wilderness Skills and Survival. I feel as though the survival the, the, the survival genre has been kind of tainted in recent decades, maybe, by sort of like fantastical television portrayals of survival situations that create this idea that nature, that wilderness are these like horribly dangerous places. Um, you best get out of there in a hurry before something bad happens to you. Uh, and you know, just always remember to drink your pee. Um, and everything's going to kill you. Uh, I view this book as being a, you know, an, an antidote to that and resetting wilderness skills and survival to a position where it is very well thought, moderate, highly skilled information sets that are passed along to you in order that you will feel more functional, capable, comfortable in the outdoors. Whether you're a professional who works in the outdoors, whether you're someone who's taking their kids out camping, whether you're just getting into hiking and you're going to go visit a string of national parks, whatever, that you will go into the woods with competency and you will understand the equipment and skill sets and mindsets involved in all forms of wilderness travel from like basic recreational to advanced stuff. It is not a book that's like meant to be full of like crazy cockamamie bullshit. In fact, the original title working title. Yeah. Was the no bullshit guide to wilderness skills and survival. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, That's the book. And we worked on it. Um, the folks in this room, Brody, Sam, Spencer did work on it. Yanni did work on it. A bunch of other people did work on it. We collaborated with emergency room doctors, river guides, all kinds of, uh, you know, mountaineers consulted with and put together a collection of, um, information that I am very proud of to see bound together in a book. And what we're going to do here is kind of walk through what you'll find in here in order to give people a a better sense of what's going on. So I'll start out by talking about the introduction real quick, which is called the surprising dangers of s'mores. And one of the things we get in this book and and, and try to like a, a theme throughout is that a big part of wilderness travel and wilderness skill and even even like a survival mentality is being realistic about risk and threats. I, I think that it's easy to have – it's easy to get um, preoccupied with the idea that you're going to get mauled up by a mountain lion. Um, and you lose sight of what actually happens to people. And one of the things we found in our research that was really surprising is that – depending on who you go to, so like groups that keep track, like wilderness groups that, that field people out in the wilderness and they keep track of what things, like o- over the course of decades, what things are leading causes of wilderness evacuations. Simple strains and sprains and cooking accidents. Like when you go out in the woods, 
you have a far greater chance of just burning the shit out of your hand on a camp stove. Did you hear Garrett Smith's story? Not the one where he poked his eye out with a pine needle? Not that one. <laughs> yeah, nope. that one required some skills that could be found in this book. But no, exactly that. Like a five, six day trip, I can't remember what river, in Montana. Garrett's a big kayaker. And uh, he's got a full pot, full, uh, what's that new stove that we like so much now? The MSR reactor. Yeah. Boiling hot water. And he goes to grab it and it kind of slips and half that water goes onto the top of his hand. And he just said for two months, it was just blistered and puffy. And they were only like, it was like their first or second night in. So he had had like three days ahead of him out in the sun, gripping a kayak paddle and having to paddle with that that wound. I saw a bad, one of the, yeah, one of the worst uh, backcountry injuries I saw was someone where he had an alcohol stove. And it's super bright out in the middle of the day. And it's hard to see that flame. The flame's blue at mm-hmm. night, but in the daytime, it's very hard to yeah, see the flame. Clear. They thought the stove had run out because they couldn't mm-hmm. see the flame. And went to free pour alcohol into the stove. And that huge, nasty, blistery hand burn also on a river trip. And there's just no getting I mean, you're just there. I mean, you could have like, really really pulled the cord on the whole thing so no because that back then we didn't have like sat phones and in reach devices which we cover heavily in this book uh surprisingly dangerous s'mores then we get into the next thing we get into and yanni's gonna do a second book report yanni's book your book reporting on this one yeah yanni's book report uh yanni's gonna break down what to pack and where like how this chapter works and the the introduction, Steve, that you just mentioned doesn't count towards the page count, so you actually Bonus get like pages. those six pages for free. You buy four hundred thirty five. Is and you that get right? The six what pages. are savings? Why on earth do they do that? I don't know. Can I tell you one quick why, thing about? You tell me why an introduction isn't counted doesn't start on page one. I don't really know. That's odd. Yeah. I wonder if all books are like that. I'll tell you a little book thing a I do know. More. There's a title page. Like a lot of books have a title page. Like if you go to this book. You, you hit a page where it says the meat eater guide to wilderness skills and survival, but it's just that. And then you go to the next page and it has the author and publisher. They call this page, the bastard page. And if you have like an antique book that's been signed by the author, it, the, it's preferable that it's been signed by the author, not on the bastard page, but on the page that shows it's, it's lineage, mm. meaning the publisher. There's a thing I want to mention about the introduction. The introduction I tell, I, I kind of kick off the book by talking about, yeah, I think Yanni was here. We were up in the Yukon Charlie's Rivers Preserve one time. And we flew over the wreckage of a plane that went down during World War II. And it was one of the guys on the plane was this dude, Leon Crane. Everybody died in the It was an experimental flight in the 40s. Everybody died in the plane except Leon Crane. And it talks about what Leon Crane did. He was, it took him months, 90 some days. He was stranded in the middle of the winter, east of Fairbanks, negative 20. And what he did for those 90 days and the kind of things that uh, he tried and the calculations that he made. And I get into like, why did that dude, like, what was it about that guy that knew like he just didn't make any mistakes? And you remember flying over that wreckage? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I talk about. 
I, I kick off by talking about my brother, Danny, who lives in Alaska and works out of single engine aircraft. He, he's, he believes in like getting up and getting down. Like you don't fly around extra shit. But what's kind of ironic is I remember we kind of flew out of our way a little bit to go look at that wreckage, which violates the get up, get down principle. But I started by talking about that guy and then some other shit. But then, uh, Yanni, lay out what people will find and what to pack and where. I will. But first, I'd like to point out that I had a, before this book, I think was even really had its inception. There was like a time when we had maybe three, four, maybe even half a dozen ideas of like, what's the next book project going to be that we're going to work on. And I remember sitting on a plane and chatting with a lady and she's asked me about what I did. And I was telling her about whatever adventure we were going to be on or we had just finished. And she said, you know, that's really nice. Like way, like not even kind of think something I would do. She's like, I need like help just kind of just like going to like the nearest lake where there might be like a half a mile or a mile hike to it, maybe a little hike around the lake and then getting back to my car in a matter of like a couple hours. She's like, that intimidates me. Mm, yeah. And I think we had a conversation soon after about like, you know, it's important when we make projects like this that we really, because the the vast majority of people out there don't have our skill set, maybe not even half of it, might be more like a small percentage of our skill set, and they are looking for just the basics to know that yes, I am comfortable and confident to go to that lake that's a mile away. There's a big trail going to it, and you like you and I just don't think that that would be intimidating, scary to just like be that far away from your car for a matter of hours and then come back. Yeah. We're used to weeks at a time. But I think that this book speaks to that person. So you don't have to be Joe Hunter, Joe Mountaineer. I'm looking into getting into backcountry skiing to get valuable information here. It can You can totally be a, a city dweller or the person you're buying it for can be a city dweller that's looking to get out for the weekend for a, like a day hike and be like, yep, I read this. There's a lot of stuff that's like beyond me, but there's like, I know exactly what's in my pack. And if I happen to have some stupid accident out there at the lake, I'm covered, right? That was yep. great. I feel like Yanni's trying to get a job at the QVC channel, man. <laughs> <laughs> that was phenomenal salesmanship. I had to make up after my poor book report showing. <laughs> no, the book report just started out lame. This started out, it just, I caught you by surprise. I feel like um, we saved it. Yeah, no, he, oh yeah, he really saved it. <laughs> and then like, um, now so he's yeah, like back up at the top of the <laughs> Chapter of the one is uh, what to pack and where. And, um, you start off with, uh, the, uh, story of you and your brothers going doll sheep hunting and sort of trying to weigh, you know, what's too much and, and what's too little and trying to find that compromise where when you're in the middle, you're like, you're getting the experience of being out in the wild, but you're also safe, right? So you don't want to go out there and just have so much stuff and be burdened by everything that you're carrying around and that you really have your experience isn't that much different than if you were to have lunch at home in your backyard, right? Yeah. But having enough that, again, rain shower comes along, you don't get soaked and get cold and have a miserable time. Yeah, versus being like so minimalist that you're vulnerable. Like you're so minimalist that you're great as long as things go real well and the weather stays a certain way and, and one thing to the next. Yeah. So and, and what's cool is that you have a – just like we did in the uh, guidebooks, we had a lot of outside experts weigh in. And I believe that in this chapter, I saw that Remy Warren weighs in and uh, Brad Brooks. Yep. Anybody else, Brody? Yep. 
in that chapter, I think that's about it. Yeah, but they kind of they kind of talk about both They're, ends of the spectrum yeah. there, like this ultralight guy and the guy that doesn't mind carrying a little bit more gear to have it. Um, I, w- I want to point out something real quick about yeah. kind of how it flows. So a part of it flows like this: survival kits overview, a basic survival kit, which gets into your basic like how to build a basic med survival kit. Then a big list of shit that's called extra shit for your basic kit. And then you get into the official oh shit jury rig kit, which is like more advanced. And I want to point out that the book kind of flows like that in general, where things start out in every chapter starts out like, okay, everything's great. Like for instance, water starts out like if your car came in, how much water do you bring per person per day? And what does that get you? Ends with how to source water. When in the absence of surface water. So every chapter flows like everything's perfect to, uh oh, and that's the, the general path mm-hmm. through. There's a lot of stuff I think that in here that you'll find in probably a lot of other like minded books. Like there's just stuff that you can't not talk about, like how to, um, what, what's the system called where you use the tarp in, in the hole in the ground to get water? Solar sill. Solar S- still. Solar still. Yeah. yeah. Solar still. Like, that's a legit thing to, to do, right? That's in an in a upcoming chapter. But what I like here, like in this one in instance, is like the, the extra stuff that you guys want to think about to add. Like, we're in the what to pack and wear chapter, but you guys did like an extra part for like specifically kids, right? Like, it's, it's different. You oh, got to yeah. think about it. Totally. Kids get wet somehow when it's like 90 degrees outside, you're in the desert, and somehow sons of bitches are soaked to the bone, you know? <laughs> Uh, we one time took our kids, we were up in Alaska and I was advocating not bringing a lot of clothes for the kids <laughs> because I was like, they'll just wear them dry. Like, you know? Yeah. It was like you. And our kid right away wades out into the water. He's two ways, wades out into the water. So he's now he's soaked up to his waist. And I'm like, well, yeah, but he'll just have to wear them dry. And my wife's like, well, he also shit his pants out there. (laughs) (laughs) You can't wear that dry. (laughs) Wearing anything dry in Southeast Alaska is hard, but when you got a dump in your pants. (laughs) 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 um, Yeah, I don't don't have too much else to say about the chapter. I think that uh, you should buy the book and, and read it and see what all is in there. Yes, yeah, the, I like there, that. There even includes, and in, 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 uh, we had, um, we made sure to go in and have a female contributor tackle this one, but uh, we got one called Mountaineering Tricks for Soggy Underthings, and it's a it's information on sports bras. There you go. Steve lays out a nice detailed packing and unpacking system in there, which I think is pretty valuable because... A lot of people just kind of throw their shit in, in a backpack and go. There's a condemnation of uh, metal wedding rings. We cover packs, knives, tools, shovels, all that kind of stuff. Oh, and we also have in every chapter like tips section. And that's when you're writing a book, a lot of times you wind up with a lot of extra stuff you want to talk about, but you can't make it fit nice. Um, and in, in narrative, uh, in narrative nonfiction or in novels and stuff, you just want to, you can't do it. Like there's no way to do it. But in a book like this, you just have a thing called like extra stuff. And then you just pile in all the stuff that you couldn't make fit normally. Yeah. And, and it's we a do way that every do time. It, it's a way to do it real efficiently too. Like just lay it out there quick. And what do you think, YP? First chapter covered pretty well. I think it's good. And it, from somebody who didn't write this book, so I can be an outsider perspective. 
think it's important too that like a lot of people could be disassociated when they think the only time you'd need this is like, oh, you're in a plane crash or something. But what Yanni's saying too, where it's like, it could be as simple as going the wrong way on a trail. And then you need some of these skills where it's like very accessible. You know what I mean? Totally. For me, that's like huge because it's like I could I could gain abilities that I might not have had just from reading. And it's it doesn't have to be some crazy scenario. It could be like everyday stuff. You Love know? it. Do we pay you anything to be here? No, but I'm I'm serious because that's true yeah. though. A lot of times you're it's like totally true. If I tried to tell my fiance like, hey. This guy was in, you know, the Sahara and his plane crash. She, she's already tuned me out. If it's like, hey, we're hiking, <laughs> she tuned me out when I started talking. But it's like, if you're just hiking, that happened to me like a couple months ago. We were on Mount Aeneas. I started, I'm like, yeah, this is the way. We ran into these bird watching guys that were like up on this survey who were like, what the hell are you guys doing out here? I was taking us across this ridge that was headed into like nowhere. These are skills I could have used if I didn't run into those guys or else I would have been screwed. Oh, thank you for saying that. I'm serious. We didn't pay you, but it would be awkward if you said, like, this is stupid. Yeah, you know what, guys? It's read the first chapter. (laughs) Six out of ten. I don't know. (laughs) Buy it, maybe. That'd be weird. No, man. Day hikers get lost and injured all the time. Like, my niece lives in the Pacific Northwest, and she was out on a hike and busted her leg and spent the night overnight. Until someone came by, you know, just just this past year. Did you hear about that elk hunter in Colorado just got super lost? Mm-hmm. They only found him because they decided on a whim to go to an yeah. area where he wasn't supposed yeah. to even have gone into. Oh, really? No, I didn't yeah. hear this story. Yeah. All right, Sam. Sam's going to cover a couple for us that he worked uh, very hard on. Yeah, well, I did uh, water and food, which sound very uh, simple on the, at the outset and got real complicated on me real quick. But, um, you know, we felt like water was, you know, first and foremost after, you know, what you bring, what you wear, because, you know, it's the the elixir of life. Um, and so, first of all, we talk about, you know, how much water you need. I mean, that's that's one of the biggest problems that people run into is not bringing enough water or not knowing uh, how to obtain water or, 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 or how to how to know what water you can trust. Uh, so we, we start off with with how much, how much water you need basically, you know, for a day to, to, to live and sit in an office or your, your couch downstairs. But, um, you know, getting into how, how that ramps up exponentially once you're outside doing stuff. Um, and, and we, we go, we go into the math of how, how, you know, how much you need, because, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of days hunting this time of year where it's cold and you're doing a lot of sitting and, you know, bringing Nalgene with you for is, is probably going to suffice for a day. But then earlier in the season when it's 75 degrees, um, you know, so you can, you can, you can bring four liters sometimes and be down to the bottom by the end of the day. Uh, one yeah, of my we have information on how to trick yourself into drinking exactly. liquid, which but is my problem. Yeah. Yeah. It can when be it's hard. cold. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's nice to have some tricks to, uh, just get more liquids in and spice it up a little bit. Cause it can be a little boring to drink nothing but water for yeah, a if week. If it's like below freezing, I'll go a day and look at my water bottle and just I, be I like, no too. interest, man. I do that too. But then like the next day I'm all, I'm, I'm all <laughs> sore and cramping up and stuff. And it's because you, you don't drink enough water. Headache. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, one of my, one of my favorite, uh, pieces we wrote about this is the, the highly divisive subject of water bladders. I'm a, I'm a camelback guy. I always have been. Um, but I know I am uh, among a minority here with my colleagues as a as a camelback dude, and I don't do it all year because you run into problems once it starts getting cold. But I, I love having it so available, and I just drink so much more water when when yeah. it's just like right there, and you don't have to dig it, dig the water bottle out of your pack when you're stopped, and you can you can eat drink it on the on the run. But 
and we we discuss all the different ways to carry your water um, but then we get into the the fun stuff that steve has a lot more experience with than i do but uh neat neat little words like giardias giardiasis 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 i butchered that cryptosporidium nailed it um escherichia coli E. coli to most people, but you know, this, the shit you can get from drinking unfiltered water. And, uh, you know, many of us have, have just sipped out of a Creek before. I mean, I, I remember going on a three day hiking trip and that's all I did. Cause I forgot my water filter. Um, didn't die. Didn't feel great afterwards, but we go in, go real deep into water filters. There's a lot of different ones in the market, a lot of different, um, yeah, pros and cons pros on U- and cons, yeah, yeah. UV pens or Steri pens. Pros and cons on ceramic filters. Pros and cons on gravity-fed filters. Absolutely. Sunlight boiling. Yeah, and we go we go all into where you, where you find water because that can be a really tricky thing too, especially if you don't have a filter where you, where you can find water that you might be able to trust. And I think that's where you know we differentiate a little bit here from some other similar books. Is that you know this is. This is like you, you you can you can drink unfiltered water if you have to. You're not necessarily going to die. It's maybe not a good idea, but you know the, the, the these things are available to you, and there 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 are ways there are other ways to uh, to get clean water or make clean water um, if you don't have a a filter, including you know like we said, solar still, transpiration bag. You can uh, you can even use UV. I, I didn't know this, but in Africa they use UV to filter their water all the time. They just, just use plastic water bottles sun. and leave it out in the sun for a few days, They're and it's, right. yeah, and it's yeah, clean. Yeah. Yep. It's going to be hot, but you know it's it's going to be clean. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, water is important as anything when you're out doing this kind of stuff. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Uh, one of the things we get into it too is like the science of how to ration water. So like what when you have limited water, how do you parse it out? Spencer, we've covered this before on the podcast, but Spencer covers in the book um, uh, why not to drink your pee. Oh, and then real quick, tell us some other, like, we like, like, we try not to give a bunch of bullshit, but some things are, some bullshitty things are so pervasive that we actually had to touch on them. So, Spencer, do you mind hitting on a couple things we had to touch on? Yeah, so we we had like, uh, I don't know, five or six sidebars in the book, maybe one for each chapter on uh, sort of things that are really prevalent 
thinking um, that we basically said bullshit on. You know, like moss only grows on the north side of a tree or you should uh, be drinking your urine or that menstruating women are more likely to be attacked by bears, all that kind of stuff. Um, my favorite sidebar that we covered was in the last chapter, I think, on the the medical part, um, basically looking at some really popular movie tropes like cowboy cauterization, which I don't know if that's like the universal term, but that's what we'd been referring to it as. Like in Rambo 3, Rambo finds himself in a very familiar situation. He is injured, he's alone, and he's shirtless. And he's got <laughs> <laughs> he's got a wicked wound in his abdomen. He pulls out a piece of shrapnel. He fell up. on a stick, didn't he? I no. don't know. Oh, okay. I don't know. That I, sounds I, lame for Rambo. Yeah, yeah that's, that can, <laughs> cannot be it. He pulls out a, a piece of shrapnel that's like the size of his pinky from his abdomen. He then fills it with gunpowder. It right. lights it on fire, and there's this whoosh. Like, he's in a cave, of course. And it's painful to him. Yeah, and it lights up the whole cave, and he passes out. not that out. painful. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he staves off infection, and he goes on in the movie. I, I, I put this in our original draft. He didn't make it in the book about how he finishes the movie because it's just so badass. Like, how many people he killed? Well, in, no, like the, the series of events. Afterwards, he goes on to steal a helicopter, crashes that helicopter. He then steals a tank. Crashes the tank into a helicopter and then saves the day. All because he was able to do this cowboy cauterization. Now, yeah. we talked to uh, Dr. Alan Lazaro who said you absolutely should not do that. An emergency room physician who we consulted with heavily in the book. Yep. He does said, not cauterize with gunpowder. Yeah. They said those are very, very <laughs> fine instruments that are like going on exact spots on your skin. If you do this cowboy cauterization where you're lighting your stomach on fire, doing some self arson. You're like taking one step forward by stopping the bleeding, but five steps back, you now have third degree burns. You're going to get infected even worse. You have dead tissue. It's just a really bad idea. And, and even aside from, from adding gunpowder, I mean, I feel like there's John Wayne or, you know, old Westerns where they would like get a knife hot in a, in a fire and then sure. then press it to the, to the wound to, to, cauterize it, seal up, stop the bleeding, and it's also very, very bad idea, just as bad yeah, as I it could be. Yeah, I think the gist of it, Spencer's <laughs> piece is don't do shit you see in movies. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The, the other one is uh, sucking snake venom, right? This is a very common Western trope. Um, I think the first uh, example I found was from 1947 in a novel called The Pearl. A mother sucks scorpion venom from a baby. Hmm. That was just... I read that. All the way up till 2018, Red Dead Redemption 2, a video game... Uh, the main character sucks cottonmouth venom from a stranger. So this is very common. This has been told of was all the over. Pearl by John Steinbeck? Yes. That's a good one. Hmm. Happens there. That was like the first example I could find of this. So what, what's, what, what's the story there? Tell people the story. Typically, the heroine stumbles upon somebody who's been bitten by a snake. They then get out their oversized knife, um, cut an X in it wrap a tourniquet above the snake wound to, I, I don't know why, prevent it from spreading further in the body. Yeah. Maybe that's the idea. And then they suck the venom out of the wound. You got to uh, spit they, real force. Yeah, really furiously yeah. spit <laughs> that venom out, right? Like like, like dirt myth. Yep. Uh, the reality is you absolutely should not do that. The venom spreads so fast that there's no, like, getting the horse back in the barn. You're also like, say this is a second party assisting you in this. You're just risking them then getting the venom in themselves as well. Hmm. You shouldn't do it. Um, 
and I've seen this sort of thing, like the, these sort of this stuff is so prevalent, like I said before, that it's just like accepted. That's what you do. When I was in high school, I was working for a number of different farmers in the area. One guy did exclusively pigs. And we, before shipping the pigs out, I think uh, to prevent shipping fever, which is just pneumonia, we would vaccinate the pigs with penicillin. And it's this really, really chaotic scene when this is happening. It's a two-man job. One guy is in the stall that's probably the size of this room with dozens of pigs. The other guy's running a gate, letting the pigs in and out. And, like, if you imagine getting vaccinated like a toddler, it's a very delicate process, right, where they, they stick the needle in and, and whatever. It's a very delicate thing. That's not the case with giving pigs penicillin. There's a big lot of stabbing going on, and once you vaccinate one of the pigs in the hip, you spray paint them. So you mark that you know this one's been done, right? It's, it's just a lot of chaos. And yeah. the pigs the pigs squeal, et cetera. <laughs> the one guy I was with when you we do were doing this. That's how they squeal. Go Something on, like that, but times a, <laughs> times a thousand. Times a thousand. The pigs are running. They're in between your legs still. The one guy I was with swung down. He missed a pig, and he stabbed himself in the thigh and injected oh. all in one motion. Stuck himself, injected himself with the penicillin whatever we go out and uh the farmhand calls the farmer and he explains to him what happened on one hand right he had stuck himself with penicillin which is like is that an antibi- antibiotic yep so you stuck yourself with penicillin on the other hand this needle had been in oh. hundreds of pigs and this yep. was peak swine flu time um i was a junior in high school in like 2009 so that was like top of mind as well he calls the farmer and he tells him what happens uh, Philip was the farmhand. Fred was the farmer. Philip tells Fred what happened. And there's a long pause, and Fred thinks about it, and he says, well, Philip, did you try to suck it out? <laughs> <laughs> As if that was the solution. So it's just prevalent stuff like that that makes it into, you know, the psyche of everybody, and yeah. that's just like a solution to a problem, but it's not. Uh, and we don't just uh, curse the darkness. We light a candle by telling you what you do do when you get stung by a snake. Zapped, whatever you call it, by a snake. And what you do do when you have uh, a chunk of shrapnel or bullet in you. So it's not all just negative Nancy. That's right. When Rambo had that wound, he should have been lighting himself on fire. He should have taken his headband out of his luscious locks and used it as a tourniquet. That would have been much more simple and much more effective. Uh, You were just saying something that made me want to say something. I don't know. Talk about food, Sam. I'll talk about food, Steve. Well, you know, the way I've been pitching this to all my all my friends and and just everybody out out there is like this is this is a book that's not it's not as much a survival guide. It's just like how to be a how to be an outdoorsman, outdoors person. Um, so you know, in this in this food section, we start with what do you bring? Because typically, when you're going outside, you just bring the damn food with you, uh, and it's a lot more a lot more simple that way. I mean, obviously, we're often going outside looking for food, but. Um, we still bring a lot of freeze-dried shit with us as we go. So we, we really break down just like how to be comfortable, how to enjoy it. Um, Including a, a section called 10 Ways to Master the Freeze-Dried Experience. Absolutely. And I think that's Hot one of the- tips on freeze-dried. That's one of the most important, that's one of the most important tips out there because if you can't enjoy freeze-dried meals, you can't spend a heck of a long time out outdoors. Yeah, you know, Gian- follow, followed Gian- by the coffee conundrum. Giannis, what do you carry with you in your backpack for freeze-dry? Stick of butter? Oh, sometimes, yeah. I like. To, I like That's to a have, hot tip. I like my butter. <laughs> I bring a. I bring a little. Uh, little bit of hot sauce with me. Salt and pepper. 
All these hot tips are in here. All these hot tips. Including a section, should you be buying all those supplements? (laughs) Which we felt like we needed to address. (laughs) And the answer is no. Um, And, and, you know, some of our, you know, more kind of cozy homey stuff, like bringing uh, jerky and smokies and pepperoni sticks and, you know, just how to have fun out there and, 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 and not get, not get so sick of the, the same old bars that you, uh, that you don't want to eat them and you're not putting in enough calories. And, you know, we also get into like how many calories you do need because, you know, everybody, everybody knows from the nutritional labels on the back of a, you know, can of beans or, you know, bag of chips that everybody has a 2000 needs a 2000 calorie diet, but that's just really not true. That's just, that's just an average of, uh, American adults. But, you know, when you're, when you're sitting around at home, you may need way less than that. But if you're climbing 4,000 feet up a mountain, you're going to need twice that much more than that even. And sometimes like you can't, cannot physically put enough calories in your body to replace what you've, what you burn through. And so we do, you know, some simple, simple math there about how to, how to consider what you bring with you, um, based on, based on weight and caloric value. Um, and, uh, you know, I talked to Giannis about, uh, about some of this stuff, uh, you know, sample overnight packing, packing list, sample five day packing list for, you know, day hike packing list, just kind of some ideas to get you started based on what we do and what we've had success with. And, what we enjoy eating. Um, you know, we, we, uh, we get into the different types of stoves, worked a lot with Ryan Callahan on that one. Um, you know, there, there's a lot of different options out there and, you know, from your pot belly wall tent stove to the little bitty, uh, alcohol stoves you can make out of a, a beer can chopped in half, um, and kind of the, some of the advantages and disadvantages. Um, and then after that, we start, um, we kind of take a, hard turn into food you can find. And so this is more in the survival section. Like when shit hits the fan, what, what do you do? What, I mean, what, what can you eat out there? That's always really the, the captivating part of any survival story is like, what do they eat? Um, and, and you find out that people live on, you know, have lived on lizards and eels and even certain types of berries for, for long periods of time. Um, and this is where this chapter got away from me a little bit. I remember you asking me for about 8,000 words and I think I turned in like 30,000 because, um, (laughs) basically, we basically went through everything you can eat in the wild areas of North America. Uh, we had to condense that a little bit on the food, uh, fruits and berries part. I worked with a a friend of yours, Samuel Thayer, who was just, oh, the man when it comes to, uh, wild plants. He's a, um, he's a, a foraging author and instructor and wild foods expert based in Wisconsin. And he was telling me when we were talking on the phone, he goes survival camping. It's just like for, for, for fun, he'll go out with nothing and just find shit to eat for a week. And I was like, that's pretty badass. Yeah, he, know, he knows his shit. He knows well. his shit yeah. real well. Uh, so he helped me narrow it down to about about two dozen different plants, like commonly, widely available, easily yeah. identified wild plants, the, without dead ringer killers. Absolutely. So it's like, well, it's got six lobes on the leaf that'll kill you, but if it's got five lobes, it's pretty tasty. We help you steer clear of the things that you're going to screw up. Yeah, and I mean, and this even helped me this this spring. Uh, a, a buddy and I were out looking for morels, and he's like, "Oh, this is uh, this is wild onion," 
we pulled, popped out the bulbs and, and I was like, man, this doesn't really look right. And, and I had just written this section and, and he ate it and he's like, Oh, that's, that's a little sour, a little, little tart. Um, and I was like thinking, I was like, man, isn't it, there's something about flat. I'm like, no, the wild onion, wild onions are supposed to be a round stem and this is flat. This is wild iris. And we would both eaten one at this point. And I'm like, oh, we shouldn't have done that. Should we maybe make ourselves throw up? Uh, <laughs> Should have read the book. <laughs> Should have read the book. A, I, a huge section in here on like, what's up with eating a, all the common questions. Yeah. What's up with eating a skunk? What's up with eating a possum? What's up with eating a coyote? What's up with eating a lizard? What's up with eating an alligator? Like all the like, where's the meat? What's up with it? What to expect? What's going to kill you? And also a little bit about like how to how to find it, how to get it. Um, yeah, primitive. You know, yeah, like how to pack for it. Primitive methods, even a, a gripping section on how to free your dog from traps, because a lot of dog owners are tripped out, often rightfully so, about traps. What to do in those situations? What the timelines look like? How to get your dog out of a trap? Should you be out hiking and something bad happens? Absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, we go, and we go from you know when when we're talking about when we get past the plants and talking about animals, we we start in with shellfish, you know, crayfish, mollusks, crabs, bivalves, um, stuff I grew up doing, you know, hopping tide pools and stuff. But you know, if you're in a if you're in a coastal area, that's probably the best way to feed yourself. Then we get into fish. Obviously, I uh, didn't didn't leave any stone unturned there. Um, but you know, there's, there's a lot of cool, cool ways to, uh, to catch fish. I had just filmed a, a little video a couple weeks ago with some of these tips that we have in here. I went and caught a brookie with a, a piece of line and a stick. I chopped and off a candy the wrapper for a lure and a candy wrapper for a lure. <laughs> and then I made a little fire and spit it up and ate it. And yeah, it, the, good stuff. The, whole, the whole thing took about a half an hour. So it's, you know, obviously we, we drove there for, with that specific thing in mind, but you know, it, it, it's, some of these things are really doable. Um, fish traps, trot lines, set lines, fish spears. Um, got, we've got this, you know, little emergency survival kit. I, I love this. We had Joe Cermelli. Um, so we had Joe Cermelli write this one about, you know, about what, uh, World War II pilots, how they had a, they had a, a little survival kit in their, uh, a survival fishing kit in their survival kit. Um, and the stuff they would bring, uh, you know, they're not bringing Rapalas, they're not bringing anything fancy, but you know, a silver or gold spoon, it's pretty much all you need. But as I, as I showed the other day, a bear hook with a little chunk of candy wrapper works just, just fine on brook trout. And, uh, you know, we kind of work our way through from the, from the easier stuff to catch kind of the less advanced animals into trickier and bigger Things we've got amphibians, we've got reptiles, lizards, turtles, crocodilians, birds. Uh, we spill a lot of ink on on the fool hen yep. concept um, in the bird section, which you know any anywhere you go in the country, they've got something they call fool hen. It's it's not the same species everywhere, but you know different types of grouse can be uh, can be very easy. Well, relatively easy to uh, to capture compared to, to other birds. The food chapter ends with my favorite section, which is called, and lastly, a few thoughts on cannibalism. <laughs> and we lay that whole situation out. If you make it that far, will you do it? 
what parts you might want to start eating on and, and a little bit of the psychology of cannibalism. And, I like uh, how that came around, too. We, most people we kicked gonna, it around for a while, and they were like, we have to talk about yeah, it. We, we just have to talk about it. Most people are going to have to have a cocktail before they get into that yeah. little chunk. Well, it, kinda, it just gets into like, it gets into like, so it sort of poses the question, you know, like, yeah. like what, what happens there? Uh, chapter four, things that bite, maul, sting, or make you sick. It just covers the whole gamut. Uh, starts out with all, you know, everything about plants. Okay. Thorny plants, cactuses, gets into insects and arachnids, goes to biting flies. So it's everything like treating it, avoiding it, worst case scenarios, uh, insect born pathogens, gets into bees, wasps, hornets, chiggers, fire ants, on and on a big shit, big bunch of stuff about Lyme disease, lone star ticks, which take away your tolerance for meat, spiders, tarantulas, scorpions, all kinds of stuff on identifying and avoiding gets into fish and reptiles like like jellyfish, stingrays, lionfish, how to deal with them. We had a big section from spear fishermen on like what's up with great with uh, sharks. A little bit of a breakdown on the four big offenders when it comes to sharks, what the behaviors are like, what to do, how to tell when you might be in trouble with a shark, shark attack prevention, all kinds of stuff on snakes, gators. A lot of stuff on mammals, a particular focus on rodents and different kind of pathogens that are passed there, how to avoid them, how to deal with porcupine quills, skunk bombs, rabbit fever, gets into hoof mammals, and then it gets into all the stuff we love to think about, grizzlies and mountain lions and all that stuff and wolves. And I'll tell you, there's a little bit of a buzzkill in there when you start looking at the numbers and is it really something you ought to be spending a bunch of time on? If you do feel compelled to spend some time on thinking about it and preparing for it, what you should do, and we get real heavily into the old debate, uh, bear spray or pistols? Um, stay tuned for that. Who wants to tackle shelter and warmth real quick? I can jump That's in you, there. Brody? Yeah, sure. Um, exactly what it sounds like. You know, how you're going to stay, basically how you're going to stay dry and how you're going to stay warm. Because that, you know, if you screw those two up, that's what's going to kill you, probably. Um, so... First of all, it's understanding weather and using every resource you can to to get a good as good a handle on the what the weather's going to be when you're out there as you can with with the the understanding that if you're going on an extended trip a week or two weeks and you're going to be you know away from civilization for for a while a ten day forecast is only so useful um because they're in there's like inaccuracies built into a 10 day forecast to begin with and in a lot of places like the weather can be one way in one valley and the next valley over it's doing something completely different so you just got to prepare for you know everything like out here in early September elk hunting in Montana it might be 75 degrees but the next day it could be you know, 25 and there's a foot of snow on the ground. So getting a handle on the weather is the big thing. Um, then you move into shelter and basically we go over, uh, different types of shelters focusing on tents and all the different kinds of tents and sizes of tents and how to pick the right tent for what you're doing. Um, you know, with the knowledge in mind that a three season tent is probably the most versatile. Um, and, and then just getting into to different types of uh, tents within that, like 
backpacking tents, family tents, you know, how to use a tarp to create a shelter. We, we, you know, oftentimes when we're out in the field, we're, we're setting up a little sun or rain or wind shelter with just, just using a tarp. It's a soup. It like, you can pack one of those things. That's basically the size of your fist inside your backpack and always have some kind of shelter with you. Then we get into sleeping bags and choosing a sleeping bag, synthetic versus down versus this new treated down that they have and understanding temperature ratings and sleeping bags and, and giving yourself a buffer. It's a good idea to always give yourself a buffer going a little sleep with a sleeping bag that's rated a little colder than what you expect to run into. Um, we got some more lists of tips and tricks like Steve was talking about for staying warm and dry and comfy in there. Um, and then we get into like campsites and picking and choosing a campsite, preparing it. And after that, we kind of get into the, the old school survival book, uh, idea of, of building emergency shelters, um, starting out with stuff you can carry around, like contractors bags and tarps and things like that and moving on to like just finding natural shelters like tree wells or digging a snow cave or building a lean-to or like all that kind of stuff and then we uh get into building fires and that's a big section because uh a lot of times uh Staying warm is going to mean you, you, you have the ability to light and maintain a fire. So we have a long section in there on, on finding fire building materials and what you should be carrying to build a fire. Like, you know, Bic lighters, like we're, we all carry probably multiple Bic lighters in our packs, but we also have backup systems like a fire stick, a magnesium fire stick, just, all kinds of info on fires in there. Great, good stuff in there. It's a good section. Um, more skills. Bro, do I have a question yeah, about yeah. that? Do you uh, in there recommend that people practice yep. yeah, making definitely. a fire? Yeah, different ways, especially under shitty conditions, you know? Yeah. Like, we've all been in southeast Alaska at Steve's cabin where getting a fire started in his stove is hard, you know? <laughs> yeah. How many of us have been on that trip where you're like, you know what? You do the fire. Yeah. I'm going to go do X, Y, and Z, whatever yeah. it might be, the other chores yes. that need to get done. Like, I'll go get and wet then 30, outside. 30 minutes you, later, you come back and it's you're smoking like, hey, and uh, <laughs> where's the fire, bro? <laughs> so, yeah, definitely practice that shit. Um, yeah, like Remy Warren says when he's late season elk hunting, he makes a little fire every time he sits down to glass. Yeah, you know, yeah, definitely. It's just, it's just, you know, keep the, keep the tool sharp. So that's pretty much that, that chapter, how to stay dry and warm. And, uh, navigation, wilderness travel. One thing you'll find, like one thing we do in this book that no other book like this has is we have a lot of very up-to-date technical information about, um, devices. So how to use mapping apps mapping software, how to use in-reach devices. So instead of getting, you know, we do cover all some of the old basic tricks about, you know, uh, celestial navigation and kind of, and a lot of that stuff is interesting and good to know. But we also cover like just how to avoid trouble by using technology. Um, you can avoid a lot of trouble. I, I brought this up recently on a, on a, when I was talking to, I was on Tim Ferriss' show talking about the book. And I said that McPhee's trilogy on geology, Annals of the Former World, in it he says, 
Um, if I could sum up this book in one sentence, it would be that the top of Mount Everest is made from marine limestone. Um, if I was going to sum up this book in one sentence, I'd probably say like Onyx and InReach. Uh, yep. Or get Onyx and InReach. It's like there's a lot of things you can do today for very small amounts of money that, if done properly, can eliminate the chance of risk. Or, oh, I shouldn't say that. Damn near. Damn near eliminate the chance and of risk. And even if something bad happens, those two things are going to make getting out of it alive yeah. way, way easier. They don't They don't solve all your problems, but holy smokes, man. A lot of times you read about people in trouble, you're like, that dude should have had of this. Uh, we talk about spatial awareness in the navigation mindset, which is probably one of the best things you can give in talking about wilderness travel is just trying to develop spatial awareness strategies so you understand what's going on around you. Navigation tools, modern technology, old school woodsmanship, getting all that stuff, locator beacons that, that are used by mountaineers, two-way radios, the capabilities of your own phone used as a GPS unit. Uh, then we have a big thing, navigating without electronics. So all that's not forgotten. Then we wind up going into different environments, okay? So navigation, wilderness travel, mountain section, swamp section, desert section, all kinds of stuff about moving on snow and ice, including how to tell frozen rivers and lakes, how to assess ice conditions, what you're going to expect when you're out on the ice. So this is one of those areas where it's just a lot of personal experience from people that worked on the book talking about like, hey, man, if you're in the mountains, traveling in the mountains, here's 10 things to keep in mind, like some things not to do, some things to do. And we lay all that out, including, uh, you know, a lot of old school tricks. We get into whitewater safety, boating safety, ocean safety, um, and then again, get into some like old school strategies around how to build flotation devices, how to survive in the water, how to survive in cold water, how long you have water rescues, all that stuff. And then a lot of packing lists, a lot of packing lists about wilderness travel. Who's going to do medical and safety? It's the last one. I can do it. Brody, lay um, it out and for One me. thing I'd also add before I start that is all these chapters, um, like contrary to a lot of of traditional survival books, um, th- that kind of go with the primitive skill route, like building, like making a fire with a bow drill, or like like knitting some buckskin pants or what. It, like yeah. we embrace like good gear, like in every part of this this book, because good gear makes your life easier, and so you're gonna find throughout the book that we're going to like call out shit that we use and stuff that we really like. Um, so I just wanted to throw that in there too. Um, so moving on to medical and safety, this is a big one. Um, it's, it's, I think people tend to, and this is, goes back to Steve's kind of reality TV survival stuff that where things are tend to be overblown. Um, the shit that's going to get you is not, it's probably not going to be the big shit. It's going to be the little shit. It's going to be a sprained ankle. It's going to be vomiting because you've got some kind of gut problem. Things like that. Like that's what's really going to screw you up in the outdoors. And and if you're in a situation where you can't get out quickly, a sprained ankle can be really bad news. And the flu can be really bad news. So that that's how we kind of built this chapter is, is going off that kind of baseline. 
But th- this this chapter starts out with hygiene, like poor hygiene. Just talk to Giannis, man. He, he's he's the hygiene, <laughs> the hygiene sheriff in camp usually. What like do you mean? He, I asked everybody if they're brushing their teeth and washing their hands. And oh, like like because like that's how you can get sick. It's yeah, like, it's called basic hygiene for dirtbags. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like knowing you're going to be dirty, but trying to maintain a level of cleanliness that isn't going to make you or other people that you're with sick. Well, you know, uh, you know, uh, your, your kids ever watch Bob the Builder? Yep. The, his theme song is Boots Belt Hard Hat mm-hmm. Work Like Bob I hear the that Bil- song getting sung in my house. Well, here's the thing: our ten year old, I made him a song about how to shower um it goes pits butt nutsack <laughs> yeah. wash like bob the builder yep. Pits butt nutsack yep wash like bob the builder exactly because like, i don't know how i get to be 10 years old i'm just like he, he like going to the shower and he steps immediately out i'm like what happened in Exa- there? oh i'm wet <laughs> I'm like, did you even use soap it's he like gone. goes in just to confirm the, yeah it's like well, how else would i be wet yep <laughs> like you just walked in there like three seconds ago dude but there's ways to stay clean even if you don't have Access to a shower. Um, and, and we go through all that. Uh, we go through pooping in the woods and how disgusting surface shitters are. Uh, big section on that. Um, have a little hygiene essentials kit. Uh, and then we move into uh, the big one, first aid I got to ask, yep. how, how many different positions did you cover for pooping in the woods? Well, I thought... Didn't we talk about this at some point? About well, stick, stick, the stick grab, and then yeah. the free squat, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and just the you know freestyle, um, leaning Chef's cheek choice, on a log. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah, we we covered a little bit of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so the then we it's go probably into, the best material ever written. I would say probably the best thing ever written on pooping in the woods. Yeah. Granted, there's a whole book on it, but we pare that down to just the info you need. Um, medical hard earned pooping yeah, in the woods yeah, advice. Yeah. This is the <laughs> real deal. Valuable. Um, first aid kits and or medical kits. Uh, probably the biggest thing we learned before, well, during the process of writing this book, the thing that we all weren't carrying that we should have been carrying is a tourniquet. And that, that goes back to our buddy, Dr. Alan Lazar. We had a whole podcast on that, that you can listen to if you haven't. Did you hear about, uh, the life we saved? Yes. I don't mean to brag. Yes. A dude listened to the podcast. And then was in a hunting accident shortly after. Saved his dad's life. His dad got shot, and he had just listened to the podcast and did all the tourniquet shit and saved the guy's life. Yeah. He said he would have never, have, like, that would not have been on his radar. But we go through. Saving lives. We go through everything you should have in your first aid kit with with the knowledge that, like, these things aren't, like, static like we're constantly adjusting what we're carrying in our survival kit what we're carrying in our first aid kits but we go through the the stuff that should always be in there the stuff that you probably want to have in there and stuff that you can move in and out of there according to your needs um and uh you just have to like you got to make it a habit of carrying a first aid kit i was just hunting with some buddies in colorado like a month ago and i was making fun of one of my buddies because he didn't carry a a first aid kit and sure shit the next day when he was skinning his buck he stabbed himself in the leg and was like man i should have been carrying a first aid kit um if you don't have it you're you're asking for trouble uh then we go into kind of just educating yourself on how to administer first aid we go through uh, all kinds of diagnosis information on like the things that are you're going to run into out there from 
sprained ankles and gut problems to bruises and strains to broken legs to illnesses to heart attacks to strokes like basically everything that could could get you out there we go through on everything on how to diagnose and and potentially treat it if you're able to uh it's pretty extensive all that stuff so we there's some real cool information on like accept, assessing abdominal pain by quadrant and uh arterial pressure guides like really good just first aid info throughout this thing i think that's life-saving yes info. yeah yeah if you're going to pay attention to one chapter in here this is probably the one to pay attention to was, uh how much is that there book brody so uh, I think it's twenty five retail, right? It's usually, yeah. That's but they, they get, put twenty five on there. It's twenty. Let me, let me I go think. look. I want to go find out. Let me find out. Real well, quick. it says right here twenty five. I think. I know, but I want to see what it's actually for sale. Nineteen ninety five on Amazon or something like that. Um, let me see. Nineteen seventy nine. That's Nin- a steal, dude. I was five years old. Night. Uh, oh, it's already listed as a bestseller here. <laughs> well, that's that's an Amazon that's bestseller. Amazon. I don't even know what the hell that means. That could be best. Listen, buy the damn book. I don't even care if you want it. Buy it and give it to someone. I'm just begging you. I don't like uh, begging and pleading. It's got a kick ass cover on it. Begging it's a, and ple- a very flexi durable flexibind cover. So you can take it outside if you need to. Do me a favor and just buy the book, please. That's all I'm asking. Please. I'm begging and pleading. Part two. Thank you, everybody. Oh no, I have a closing statement. Oh, I know geez, we're sorry. Over, I know we're long over time. No, hit it, Yanni. But I'm I'm a little surprised that none of you picked up on all this and wanted to add this because what what really to me sets this book apart. And I'll admit I have not read the whole thing, but I've heard this from people that have read the whole thing. Is that it doesn't read like just a bunch of dry right. information. Everybody here that contributed like is is as very like good, creative, flowy. Um, like great stories in there that kind of back up all this information and and personal anecdotes of, you know, how they learned this stuff and how they could have known, you know, how they could have used the more information that's in this book now at that moment. And um, yeah, so it's like, it's a good read. You're not going to be, it's not going to put you to bed at night. You're probably going to stay up wanting to read more. You'll lay there uh, making this noise. You'd be like, you're reading, you'd be like to your uh, husband, you'd be like, oh my God. And you'd be like, ha, 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 that's funny. And then you'd be like, holy cow, did you? And, you, and then you'd be like, oh, man, I had no. Like, you'll be doing all night long. We have a lot all of night fun. Long. Your we husband a... be like, my God, I got to get a copy of that book. We we have a lot of fun with the survival guides of the past, how, you know, they would have a diagram of a deer with, like, a bullseye on its head. And, like, this is where you stab a deer, and that's how you survive. <laughs> and so we're kind of like, yeah, forget all that. You know, a squirrel might be a little bit better move for you right now, so. Okay, everybody, join in the fun. Oh, Leon Crane, the guy that got, I'll bring this full circle. Leon Crane, the guy that got uh, in that plane that wrecked, um, spent days trying to kill a pine squirrel and couldn't do it. Tried everything. Started walking and found a trapper shack. That's what saved him. And he knew he did some very good decision making about what direction he ought to walk based on topography. But yeah, he's like, oh, I'll just kill some pine squirrels. He said he about went mad, started eating pine needles. Oh, that's got to make your guts great do story. all sorts of stuff. Join the fun. 
The Meat Eater Guide to Wilderness Skills and Survival. Buy a shitload now. YP says it's the best wilderness skills and survival book he's ever seen. Ever. By far. And he said, I bought 10 already. I bought 11 already. Oh, he just bought another one. All right, thanks, everybody. First Light has always made the world's best base layers. They're warm, breathable, silent, and odor-resistant. But the women's fit and the gear weren't meeting our demands, so we went back to the beginning and rebuilt everything. Re-engineering the gear with the most dedicated female hunters in mind, First Light modernized the fit and added more sizes, colors, and camo patterns. I personally have been testing the women's gear over the last couple of years, uh, from the mountains in Idaho to the plains in Nebraska, and I feel like the fit especially has landed in a much better spot. It's more true to size. It's not as tight and binding in certain areas like a lot of women's fit. Uh, All of the pieces, to me, got an all-around upgrade. It's awesome to see. So for yourself or as a gift this Mother's Day, pick up First Light's new women's merino wool and get free shipping on all orders containing women's gear. Available now at F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E dot com.